Welcome to Human Rights Matters, where we discuss matters of human rights because your rights matter. In this episode, we're going to talk about mental health and police encounters. This is a topic that's gaining attention uh, nationwide. The statistics currently show that of the persons killed by police, at least one in four had a mental health issue. And if you have a mental health issue, you're 16 times more likely to be killed by the police. There's been a lot of incidents during this year that have garnered attention. In March in Rochester, New York, Daniel Prude was experiencing a mental health crisis uh, when police responded to a 911 call uh, from his uh, relatives. The officers uh, put a spit hood over his head. Within three minutes, Prude was uh, unconscious and he died seven days later. In April uh, 2020, Nicholas Chavez was also having a mental health uh, breakdown in Houston when he was killed he was shot 21 times by police with 28 officers on the scene. In June, uh, June 5th of 2020 in Mount Vernon, Virginia, Lamonta Gladney had called for assistance and was eventually um, arrested uh, by police uh, after they used a stun gun on him and the officer has since been charged. In September 2020, a 13-year-old in Utah was shot 11 times by the police after his mother called and explained that he was autistic and was um, having problems. And in October 2020 in Philadelphia, Walter Wallace was shot by police after his family had called for an ambulance uh, because Wallace had mental illness and he had been uh, taking uh, lithium. Today we're joined by Dr. Sandra Smith, who holds a PhD in uh, Human Services with a dissertation focused on support services. She's a certified peer recovery support specialist, certified reentry peer specialist, which she developed, and a licensed chemical dependency counselor. She has worked as a peer programs manager and associate director of recovery community center in Dallas, Texas. Her most recent endeavor was the creation and co-author of the curriculum for the first reentry peer specialist certification and training in the state of Texas. In 2014, she became a published author of her true life story called Choices. Dr. Smith's non-traditional recovery includes overcoming thoughts of abandonment as a child, process addiction, and surviving incarceration at the world's boldest Rikers Island in New York. Choices has been published as a criminal justice workbook and used in jails and prisons around the country as a mechanism to spot recovery conversations. In her spare time, she travels to prisons and jails throughout the country, consulting and sharing her story of consequential thinking and redemption. Today we're also joined uh, by uh, Kerry Watson, a former uh, police officer with the Prince George's County Police Department of 20 years, and he has been a frequent contributor to our podcast. So today I wanted to approach the issue from a use of force perspective, as we're seeing that many of the, the encounters and the lack of awareness uh, by the police are having uh, deadly consequences. And so Sandra, the first thing I wanted to do was to sort of try to define the issue. I keep trying to figure out what's the label that I put on it. And so if you can just give us like a brief intro about how you define the issue, because we're talking about a lot of different things. It may be legitimate mental health issues, substance issues. There's a lot of different categories. So overall, how do we put a label on this so we start approaching it in the right manner? Yeah, I think it's really just about you're right. It's just so broad that it's hard to like, like squash it down into one category. 
Um, but I think my definition would be just individuals that are experiencing behavioral health challenges. Um, I don't, you know, the, the world that I live in, which is the peer support world, um, the world, the word illness, um, the words, um, you know, substance use, mental health, you have to throw in the whole criminal justice system um, as defined by SAMHSA, the Substance, use, uh, substance um, uh, Administration for the federal government. It really is, has come to the place where we're trying to just categorize all three of those things as behavioral health. Um, so if we can start to just think of it that way and with the encounters with police, it's really just about those three things, uh, substance use and mental health from a health perspective. And then obviously the criminal justice part comes because of that encounter. Yeah, so, so uh, behavioral health challenges sort of incorporates all the different facets of, of the issue. Right. So, you know, as just broadly, it kind of gets, you can have all kinds of arguments, but when you kind of put it into that bucket, hmm. it's all encompassing. When you read the data you just mentioned, and when we talk about uh, all the things locally that we're dealing with here in, in Austin and Texas and Dallas and Houston, it's really just about educating uh, law enforcement about behavioral health, period. And as a peer support, um, I don't know, peer support uh, specialist, mm -hmm. when you look at the police response to these types of calls or these types of issues, I mean, from that, from your lens, what does it look like to you? That's another huge one. Um, but I think, again, I go back to what I know works, which is mm -hmm. educating people and having them really understand the difference between uh, evil acts and the difference between mental health breaks and substance use breaks. Um, and when I say substance use breaks, I mean just that an individual has used substance use to the point that they are no longer in control of their actions or even their mental state at that point. So I think it's really just about, from a peer support perspective, when we've had individuals that are um, again, suffering from mental health or substance use breaks, have that encounter. Uh, I've been in situations where luckily the police actually were trained and there was a specific division that we could call to make that encounter not necessarily end up in a fatality. Um, mm -hmm. And by that, I mean that they've been educated in the way that they understand how to approach those individuals as a potential mental health or substance use, as opposed to this is just, you know, uh, an evil act that's happening here. And with training, um, it's not that difficult to really know the difference. Um, and I, I know from a police perspective, that's really hard because their job is to eliminate the threat. So there's that whole conversation that needs to be about what's the best way to approach that so that the police can do their job and so that perhaps a mental health pers personnel can assist them in the situations that are specific to behavioral health. Yeah, I, I want to ask Carrie to, to kind of follow up on your 
your answer there. I mean, Kerry, I mean, from a police perspective, when you get calls like that, I mean, from a police lens, what is it, what is the, the thought process that goes through when you're, when you get those types of calls? Well, I, the, she articulated part of that pretty well in that, you know, officers are going to go to calls primarily looking to survive the encounter. And if there, it depends on how that call goes out and, and what it looks like, you know, on that scene. If an individual is having a, a violent outburst due to some mental health break or substance abuse issue, um, officers should be looking to first kind of uh, calm the scene down, calm the individual down as best they can. Um, unfortunately, if you don't have, as an officer, if you don't have all the information available to you and you don't know if it's substance abuse, if you don't know if it's PCP as an example, you don't know if they're having just a mental health break, it's not clear on how you should engage that person. Should it be a, a de-escalation? Should it be, you know, back down, give them space? Do you give them time? And I think that's something else that is often misunderstood from the public is that time is part of the, the equation. Do officers have the ability to spend a half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half on a particular call? Often they are looking to get that incident over immediately and get to the next one because there's other calls that they have to respond to. So it's, it's a challenging issue. And I'd like to hear more from Dr. Smith about, you, you mentioned training officers. Uh, you know, in a nutshell, what are you training them to see and how do they respond to that? Well, that's, that's a good injury because my next question was going to be uh, to, for um, Douglas Smith to talk about the training. And I think it goes to your last uh, point there. Would tr training be beneficial in actually reducing the length of time you spend on a call like this if you knew what things that you were looking for, how you were better able to handle it so that you can actually de-escalate or make a, make a, a decision in a, in a more you know, time-efficient manner? Because part of the, the problem may be that because an officer doesn't know how to actually engage with a person, we have this length of time because they, they're looking at it from a single lens as evaluating whether this person is a threat or not, not necessarily trying to evaluate what type of um, you know, behavioral um, health issue is happening. So Sandra, if you can sort of talk about the training, like probably three important points about what is it that officers need to know or should be aware of when they make these encounters? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Carrie actually identified the, the biggest issue, which is, you know, they don't have, police officers don't have 30 minutes to, and, and, and again, it's not their job. They're not there to evaluate, so to speak, a situation. And that's where the majority of the conversations and conflicts come from. And that's why for me, it's back to the training, right? So if I get a call and it's not clear because uh, oftentimes it's just not, I mean, that again, that's just the reality is because of the, the escalation of situations, if a mother calls, just for instance, and says, my son has, is autistic and he's on the spectrum, but I can't control him right now, that's pretty clear, right? Like that's a situation where you know what, what you're walking into. If the mother is just hysterical and calls and says, 
you know, I can't control my son and he has a knife, then you've literally set up a totally different situation that an officer may be walking into. So, so for me, the training comes all the, you know, from the beginning, the community, uh, 911, really about the questions that 911 can ask. Um, and I know it's hard because again, I know personally when I'm in that, you know, when you're in that hypervigilant stage, it's not about, I'm like, stop asking me all those questions. I need to do the thing, right? So I, I get that. And so that's why when you kind of try to pull back and answer the questions and, and we've talked a lot about that, you and I, like, what is the answer? Like, how do we, how do we approach this and how do we help this? So again, training for me is training, it's a systemic change. It has to start with the entire system. It's things such as identifying trauma, being trauma informed, being trauma responsive. It's about going back to the DSM-5 and identifying those types of uh, mental health diagnoses that can result in certain actions that officers may not be familiar with. And I keep going back to autistic because that's really huge when you're talking about um, individuals that are autistic, their reflexes, just, just something as simple as trying to respond to a command of stop, something that basic to an autistic person, the, the command is not going to land the way that it would with someone that's not on the spectrum. So it's those simple types of nuances, simple but very important, all the way up to, again, I'm having a first episode of psychosis and I have zero concept of any command that's being given to me. And so for police officers, the response is usually, again, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to learn something, a psychology. Like I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor, I'm none of those things. I'm not even a peer specialist. So how can we, and I don't have the answer to your question, first of all, <laughs> but, um, but how, how do we get to the point where there's like at least a balance, where there's at least, um, you know, I'll go back to Dallas where I can only speak to my personal experience. There was just a specific part, um, but there was a specific part of the police force that was a number that the public was educated that they could call that the community organization I worked for knew instead of calling the police directly, instead of dialing 911, there's another number. Or I can dial 911 and ask to be transferred to the APAP unit. And I always forget what that acronym is for, but it's apprehensive police um, assistance or something of that nature. But they were specifically trained to come again I, some simple things is they would come maybe three or four units, but they didn't have on sirens because that to an autistic individual or even to someone that's having just a mental health break or even someone that's having a substance misuse um, encounter the sirens and, and all of that noise and all of the extra attention that comes with something as simple as showing up with sirens on is eliminated. And so I walk into that situation, they would know to address the individual with, I'm here to help you. I'm going to have to handcuff you. 
However, you know, I, this is protocol, I have to do it. So it's a non-threatening, non-guns drawn type of situation, but that's because they were aware of what they were walking into. And so we, we can't expect police again to walk into that. So for me, it's training 911, it's training communities, it, I know you asked for three, but it's not that simple. It's training. Hmm. Um, it's training all first responders. It's training like that co-training between community, police, and uh, public health officials. Like there's so much cross training that has to happen just to increase the level of awareness of this is even a thing. There's so many states and and municipalities that don't. They're like. Mental health, you know, that's just not part of what happens on a day-to-day. -day. And it's like, no, yeah, it is. It happens every day, all day, and that's the problem, is because the level of awareness isn't there. So we have to start with awareness, which includes the educational piece, and then there comes the training. If all parties are, are open to that, um, then there are um, pilots that have successfully paired police officers with therapists and have successfully paired police officers with peer specialists so that you're not expecting peers or counselors to be police and you're not expecting police to be counselors or peers. Um, and it, it does, again, it requires some commitment on both, you know, both parts, but I think the data shows that it's effective when they're allowed to do their job, which is I need to step, step in and protect and serve, but the counselor's like, let me at least do a really quick, again, you don't have 30 minutes, some cases you don't have two minutes, but at least an evaluation of a licensed professional or certified professional can significantly decrease um, the situations related to behavioral health. Uh, that was a lot of information in there, but it, it, it actually <laughs> incorporates my next two or three questions. In, in looking at the issue of training, is there a comprehensive approach? We kind of addressed it, but I want to unpack that a little bit and understanding the mannerisms and behaviors exhibited by persons in distress. And so when I, I start thinking about this comprehensive approach, it has to start with the relative or person making that initial call for assistance on what information wow. that they're giving the mother of the 13 year old autistic child in i think it was salt lake city when she calls the police and says you know well you know he hates the police he's afraid of the police but he might have a gun it might be a bb gun i don't know and obviously then that puts the police in a totally different category or response category the second stage is training for dispatchers to know what kind of call so even though somebody calls in a panic and says you know my son my uncle or whoever it is is being violent or behaving violently they need to ask a few more questions to sort of narrow it down to what kind of response are we talking about and the comprehensiveness about this whole you know officers need to understand uh, be trained and aware as well but when you look at the models that are being set up, when you talk about a comprehensive sort of manner, it's only focused on removing the police from the situation so that we have a different response 
but I don't see anything talking about how do we inform the community or people that um, have family members that are maybe constantly in this, you know, sort of distress. And does it expand to dispatchers and others outside of that limited, you know, I guess, goal of reducing police contact with these folks? I mean, I think, again, I go back to it, it, it has to encompass everybody to work. I mean, I don't know, just, just in what you just said about that, that uncle, the, in, again, in those nanoseconds, the, if the dispatcher says, does your uncle have a history of mental health or substance use? Simple question. J just that quick. Uh, you, I might not know now, so we're still back to, I may not know the answer, but imagine the people that do, like the number of people that do know that answer. Well, yeah, he's been in a mental health facility or yeah, you know, there's been some issues or yeah, he's on medication and he wasn't able to get his medication. Like, so there, so there are, there are some, again, we don't want to ask a thousand questions because we don't have time. Time is not our friend in these situations, but that question takes a couple of seconds and could eliminate, you know, there's the potential to eliminate or at least understand what needs to happen then as opposed to, again, my uncle has a history of, you know, abusing someone as opposed to my uncle has an alcohol or a substance use misuse situation. That doesn't necessarily mean they're less violent, but what it means is, is that it may be approached differently than, again, I, I hate using the word just regular evil, but, but a normal, um, you know, a typical just just violent situation. Yeah. Gary, you want to? You got anything? Else? I do. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned in Dallas this, the the program uh, that they created, uh, and you used the term commitment, and that is the right term. Yeah, I'm curious. And something like that requires not just commitment; it it it, it requires a commitment to certain resources and an investment by a community, by a city, by a jurisdiction. I'm curious what brought the city of Dallas to the point where they were well, ready and willing to make such a commitment? Personally, I think it was elected officials, right? So if you've got elected officials and you have data and you have agreement with district attorney, like the whole, you know, if you look at the sequential intercept map model, when you looked at zero to one, that includes the community and it includes law enforcement, which for me, that includes judges and DAs and police. And so, yeah, it requires those individuals from the top down to come to the table and agree, let's at least try this, right? So I believe in pilot programs because usually they don't, they don't require a huge, huge amount. You know, we just really want enough resources to again take this pilot which is thought out which has the buy-in from the community all the stakeholders uh, which includes again mayor maybe even governor but i don't think the governor was involved in that um it's just it's it's a, co a commitment from all of those people to say hey you know we're not talking about defunding police i just that term gets all underneath my skin because that's really not what I'm talking about. I don't know what everybody else is talking about. It's really just, can we take some resources and commit them to 
a, a small pilot get some data, because I am huge on data, to say, hey, if we approach this, this, this way, this new way, which includes, again, all the people, the community meetings, the local media, which has a huge effect on how things are, are, are viewed, you know, perception, unfortunately, is huge. Um, and the media pushes that, you know, we know that. So it, it's literally everybody. It's media, it's community, it's um, police, judges, mayors, prosecute, all, all, all of the above have to sit down and have a conversation. They hide, you know, private foundations and individuals that provided resources to be able to buy uh, a mobile unit that houses mental health professionals. It starts with a conversation. It starts with a very clearly defined uh, program that's written out, that is reviewed, because you also want to say, well, is there something I don't know? I don't know about policing. Don't want to know anything about policing. I was formerly incarcerated. I had my stint with that. I'm good. So what we do need to be able to do is bring everybody to the table that, that has um, a stake in this and look through what this pilot is and are there holes? Is there something that you propose that, yeah, that's not going to work because of X, Y, Z, but how about we try this? And it really is just about communication. It's like any other relationship. It's about communication. It's let's talk about it. Let's look at it from all the people that have experience in it. And then maybe we can start to effectuate change. If it's saving lives, any, any lives, it's worth it. And if you have a pilot that doesn't work, then tweak it. Then bring those people back to the table and with the data say, here's what worked, here's what didn't work. Maybe 911 needs to have broader or narrower uh, training as to what those questions are. You know, look at timing. How long did it take to figure out whether this was a mental health or substance use? And in the community, then they learn when I dial 911, the first thing I need to say, not the last thing or the thing that I forget is, my son is autistic and, as opposed to there's a threat and then you forget the part about my son is autistic. Then you don't know as a police officer, again, you're trying to eliminate the threat and protect. And so it's language, it's training, it's community, it's collaboration, and it's not easy, but it's worth it if we can change this dynamic of all of the innocent people that have been killed unknowingly um, just because we weren't educated, just because we didn't know. I wanna, I wanna jump in on a, another question because it goes back to the issue about commitment. What is the overall motivation for replacing the police? Not that the peer support model isn't, isn't being effective, but is it just to remove the police because we see that there's a problem? Because I feel like a more comprehensive approach would be not only this peer support issue, but to approach mental health issue on a broader social uh, structure. Because if we just continue moving, removing the police from these situations because we don't want to have these fatal or you know escalation, and we don't do anything overall for mental health generally, 
we're kind of still feeding this system where we're continually trying to figure out how do we keep the police at bay? So, but where's the discussion about overall mental health? It's really just about, it's not about, again, it's not about eliminating the police, but it's, it's allowing the police to deal with the situations that are not behavioral health uh, related. It's about trying to get um, more treatment facilities. It's about trying to get more mental health hospitals so that even if they do have that encounter at intercept zero to one in the in the in the sim model then those people can be diverted if they live through it those people can be diverted to treatment facilities and hospitals so that they can get proper treatment juxtapose going to jail and overcrowding our jail system so that when we talk about recidivism rates at the end of the model, which is four and five, when people are re-entering, you haven't done anything. You've simply shoveled somebody through a system that should not have been in that system in the first place. So you're absolutely right. It's really not about, you know, it doesn't start with policing. It starts with the behavioral health system and the funding needs to go to treatment and facilities and recovery and you know psychiatrists and it needs to go but but that you know what we don't talk about is that level of the health system is also completely overwrought they're completely you know bursting at the seams because there are so many mental health um, illnesses that go undiagnosed because just like with the regular health system right now with COVID, it's completely busting at the seams because we don't have enough facilities to deal with that. It's no different in um, a psychological situation. There's not enough trained, licensed, and I, and I say that because if you're not properly trained and you're not licensed, you can do more harm than good when it when it comes to interacting with these individuals. So, you know, I, I have to throw that in there because you have, um, we could go off on a tangent with pastors, right? When you talk about all of these pastors that think that they're psychiatrists or particularly in the African-American community where you have preachers saying, go pray about it and that's great. Prayer is awesome and it works, but these people need more than prayer, I'm sorry. They need to go to counseling. They need medication in some cases. And I'm not even a big person on medication. However, there are a lot of situations where there is a chemical imbalance that requires medication that's just, just going undiagnosed and untreated because our communities are, are pushing us in a different direction. So it is, it's just, it's so massive. Now, you, you mentioned language and something that's kind of a reoccurring theme in, in our conversations, my Reggie conversations, uh, is the words matter. And in terms of policing, simple things like re-envisioning what policing is, not being law enforcement, but actually being public safety. If the mindset walking into an incident is my job is to keep the public safe, as opposed to enforce the law, the engagement is immediately different. Um, so, you know, and, and there's been programs 
around the country, and, and one in particular, the jurisdiction where Reggie and I used to police, that they had for a period of time, it was called transforming neighborhoods. Um, and the concept was there were pockets of the jurisdiction that had particular challenges. And it could be with substance abuse, it could be educational deficits, it, 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 social services, all of these things. And understanding that those communities will never thrive if the uh, solution is always police-based. You have to provide communities the services that it needs. It's not equality, it's equity. It's making sure that where the deficiencies exist, that you invest in those areas to help elevate an entire community and to require less need for law enforcement. Just having public safety ultimately is where we need to be. And that is not just policing. It's my last two questions that I had. <laughs> so you mentioned recidivism and you talked about these intercept points. Now, obviously, from a law enforcement lens, recidivism is always seen as career criminals. And I think there's a rare occasion that we view it as people being incarcerated because of a behavioral health issue. And mm. so we never look at a recidivism rate from that standpoint. We're always looking at it from crime reduction, but never an issue of this untreated mental health issue as it relates to recidivism. And one of the things you talked about again was the intercept points. Um, at what stage, or is there a specific stage that it's most beneficial to uh, intercept these individuals and, and, and sort of start looking at the behavioral um, health um, challenges? Zero. So this is, I mean, zero because, and I say zero because if you look at the intercept um, map model, um, zero again is community and law enforcement interaction. So if, if I am to um, intercept with a career criminal, the, the idea comes all the way back, um, which most things for me do, they come back to trauma. So the reason my career has been incarcerated is because I don't know anything different. I, I, I am acting and reacting based on what I know. I can't, I can't change my behavior if I don't know any different way to behave. I can't address you know, how to go be a productive member of society where the end game should be quality of life I can't get all the way over there if I'm still dealing with Sandra, the, the, the eight-year-old, or Sandra, the nine-year-old. It is, it is virtually impossible mentally for me to jump from there, regardless of what my physical age is. If I am still functioning based on the nine-year-old me, um, and the nine-year-old me knows that I, I, have to, I have to take to survive, I have to do drugs, I have to sell drugs, I have to be on the street, I have to be streetwise, um, then that's what I'm gonna act out. That's how I'm gonna behave because I don't know that I could take those same qualities and go to business school and be an entrepreneur. I don't know that because nobody ever introduced it to me and nobody ever had the conversation with me in a safe environment, a safe environment, not not an antagonistic environment. Nobody ever gave me the opportunity to have a conversation around what happened to me as opposed to what's wrong with you. 
or why did you do that? Nobody ever asked the nine-year-old person that. They always go to, why, what is wrong with you? And even as, you know, as parents with kids, there's a tendency not to ask what happened. It's, well, what's wrong with you? Which that question as a kid says to me, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken, I'm flawed. So I behave as a broken, flawed person. So the repeat offenders, going back to data, not, not Sandra, not Dr. Smith, data, the repeat offender has been traumatized repeatedly from whatever age as a child until now. So I can't, you can't change their behavior by continually putting them through a system that doesn't even identify that they have those traumatic situations that they're living with. So repeat offending, you know, again, we have to on an individual basis, which again is so overwhelming, but the answer to that is there's a reason that person is doing that. Nine times out of 10, not eight, nine times out of 10, it's because it's the only thing they know to do. But I do believe that people have redemptive qualities, but they have to be put in, they have to be in a situation where um, that can be addressed as opposed to, you know, I, I don't know a lot of correctional facilities that do a lot of correction. <laughs> it's punitive. Right. You know, it's punitive and, and, and people are treated that way. So that, that's just not the answer for the individuals that really could be productive members of society if given the opportunity. So today we covered a lot of information concerning uh, behavioral health and encounters with the police. And if I can, I think there's probably three important things, uh, three takeaways that um, we can leave with. One is that mental health and behavioral health and how it's dealt with is a broader um, a social issue. It's not just about removing uh, police from the encounters, but actually having a comprehensive and a holistic approach to mental health and behavioral health within uh, the community. Simply informing the public about what information needs to be conveyed when they uh, have to call 911 simply saying that somebody is being violent and elicits a response from the police that is intended to deal with a violent person as opposed to somebody saying my son is autistic or my uncle is off his medication and he needs help again that would elicit a totally different response in the same vein that uh, dispatchers or 911 dispatchers have to also be aware of behavioral health and, and be trained in how to handle these situations and ask the necessary questions to determine whether the person that they're encountering is having a behavioral health issue. So that's one takeaway. The second is that people with behavioral health problems, in particular people with autism, may not be able to follow basic commands from the police once they're on the scene. For example, the 13-year-old boy in Salt Lake City in Utah. He was autistic, he fled the house when the police arrived. Um, and they were given in commands as he was running away through an alleyway. And again, like I said, he was shot uh, 11 times. So we need to be more aware of our mental health issues. And again, community involvement and awareness that sort of mitigates an over response from the police. And that's the third thing that um, I think is an important takeaway 
that if deadly force is a um, uh, consideration, then basic uh, human rights principles concerning the use of force should be applied. And that is the uh, acronym PLAN. It should be proportional. It should be legal. There must be mechanisms of accountability. And then only the amount of force that is absolutely necessary should be used. I mean, a lot of instances we see individuals that aren't violent and forces being used against them. For instance, the June 5th incident in Mount Vernon, Virginia, Lamonteur Gladney, again, he is the one that called the police. He was asking to go to detox. They were having a tough time getting him into an ambulance, but then an officer shows up and, you know, tases him and then arrests him. So we look at, there was no crime that was committed, and yet there was a, a use of force that was unnecessarily which resulted in the officer being charged. I want to thank Dr. Smith for uh, participating. I also want to thank uh, Kerry Watson again for being here. And this is the end of our episode this week on behavioral health and the police. Thank you again for joining us on Human Rights Matters.